From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, a conversation with District Attorney Ben David. David first joined the DA's office in 1999, leaving private practice to work for DA John Carricker. Five years later, at the relatively young age of 34, David was named Carricker's heir apparent. Carricker announced he would retire in the summer of 2004, halfway through his four-year term. And he recommended David as interim DA and endorsed him as the Democratic candidate, although the governor ultimately named someone else as interim. David fought through a four-way Democratic primary and a few months later defeated Republican Jennifer Harjo in the general election. It wasn't a landslide, though. David won by just under two percentage points. But since 2004, he's been elected in five uncontested elections. Over the years, David has prosecuted several high-profile cases, including the second-degree murder conviction of James Opleton Bradley for the death of Shannon Rippey Van Newkirk, a difficult case because the victim's body was never found. David also made pioneering and controversial use of the civil courts to fight crime, starting with a civil injunction against Club Rhino in downtown Wilmington, then further injunctions against motels along Market Street where sex work, illegal drugs, and gang violence were rampant. Then, David launched his anti-gang injunction in 2017, targeting members of the 720 Folk Nation and prohibiting them from congregating in public. Critics, including the ACLU, said David had gone too far and was violating their constitutional rights, and the ACLU was set to challenge the injunction when David allowed it to lapse, saying it had been successful. David's also been active at the state level, pushing for policy changes and legislative reform in a variety of the facets of the criminal justice system. And here in the Cape Fear region, he's been a strong proponent of trauma-informed policies, leaning into ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, Last week, David announced that next year, he'll retire halfway through his term. Just as when John Carricker retired 20 years ago, that will set up an election, letting the people of New Hanover and Pender counties pick their next district attorney, something Ben David says was highly important to him. David is emphatic that this is not a retirement, both because he won't actually be hanging up his law license and because he still has a lot of work ahead of him. On the day I met with him for this interview, he had just wrapped several hours of preparations for a murder trial, one of several on his docket. But as we sat down in his office on the fifth floor of the New Hanover County Judicial Complex, before we got to the murder trials and the civil injunctions and the rest of his 20-year legacy, I had to ask him about the latest in the Wilmington Crime Lab lawsuit. This is a civil suit filed last year by the former director of the Wilmington Crime Lab, Bethany Pridgen. We'll have plenty of backstory about the lawsuit on our show page, but in short, the suit alleges that several years ago, top law enforcement officials effectively covered up issues at the crime lab, including missing drugs. And this would have potentially impacted hundreds of cases, not the much smaller number that had been publicly discussed. Pridgen alleges that, among other things, David played a role in blacklisting her, costing her her job when the crime lab was transferred from the Wilmington Police Department to the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office. Now, David denies any role in this, and at the beginning of the year, the claims against him were dismissed. But based on new evidence revealed during the discovery process, a judge agreed to add David back to the case. This happened on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. The next business day, on Monday, David announced he would be leaving office halfway through his term. The timing was striking. 
So even though it was an awkward place to begin an interview, that's where we started. And just a note here before we get going, due to a technical issue that is completely my fault, we lost part of the audio from my questions, although Ben David's answers were not affected. So I've re-narrated some of the questions I asked him and in some places added some backstory and context. Ben David, District Attorney for New Hanover and Pender Counties. How does it look? Looks good. Perfect. Cool, man. So out of respect, I want to get this out of the way first. All right. Because on Wednesday, Judge Cobb added you back to the civil suit uh, involving the, the crime lab. Um, I wasn't even aware of that. You were not aware of that? No. So thank you for telling me. You are welcome. Um, so I am, based on that, I'm going to guess that you, that is not in any way related to your announcement the following <laughs> business day on Monday. No. Fair enough. Um, do you have any comment on being added back to? I haven't even seen that filing, so I, I haven't looked at it yet. You know, in my history as district attorney, you have to fend off many um, feckless lawsuits, and I put this in that category. Um, okay, so on to the reason we're here today. Um, if that is not the reason, I have to ask, what is the reason that you have decided after almost 20 years to, yeah. to put it down? Yeah, well, let me first say that nothing's wrong. Um, in fact, it's never been better, and that's why I'm leaving now. Um, you know, this office is more than just me. There's 50 people who work here. Um, there is a great group of law enforcement officers and 20 different police agencies we advise. And I'm reminded now more than ever that this doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the people, this office. And so they should get to decide who's the DA next. And by making this announcement now, we're going to give the community enough time to discern what to do next. Um, you know, my understanding of the law, and you're going to have to look into it, is that if there's a vacancy created at least 60 days before an election, in this case November 5, when the president and the governor and other races are on the ballot, that this race would be also. But that if I stayed even, you know, another week, it wouldn't be. It would be just one person making an appointment. And I believe strongly that the people should get to decide. So the reason that I'm making this announcement now is to give the process the time I think it needs because next week is a filing period. And even though, and again, you're going to have to talk to the Board of Elections, Ben, I'm not sure that people are even allowed to file for this office because of, of the way the statute reads. Um, my understanding, at least for now, is that unless they interpret it differently, that the parties get to do the nomination process. Um, I am hopeful, because this happened 20 years ago to me. With John Carricker. Yes. When John Carricker retired in the middle of his term, um, there was initially community discussion about the same statute and the same thing happened. That is, oh, let the Democrats put up a person and the, and the Republicans. Well, there were four of us who announced we wanted to run. And so they opened up the process, and four of us ran in a special election to get that nomination. And I, I won more than 50% of that vote, avoiding a runoff. And that happened on September 14th of 2024, excuse me, 2004. And so then I was able to run against Jennifer Harjo on November 2nd of 2004 and won the general election. I am hopeful that the community will have enough time um, to, you know, pick who the next DA is through this process. And so that's why I put this on that timing. I can't control what the Board of Elections does. It's an interpretation. But I do know that by saying when I'm leaving and holding to that date, that there will at least be an election. 
You mean that there will be an election in 2024? That's right. Yeah, okay. That is my understanding of, of the law. The yeah. Democratic Party um, will nominate someone. And, and so will the Republican so Party. Party. And so can the Libertarian Party. Anyone who's a named party is my understanding. Yeah. Political realities being what they are, I don't see a green candidate be a... <laughs> in 2024. It would it be a possible. controversy. <laughs> it could happen, we'll see. After checking with the local and state boards of election and the Democratic and Republican parties, we figured out the process is a little complicated. Candidates can't file for office during the current period that opened on Monday, December 4th and runs through this coming Friday, December 15th. That's because, technically, David hasn't resigned yet, so there's no vacancy to force a midterm election. Instead, parties in New Hanover and Pender County will send recommendations to state committees, who will nominate a candidate to run during the 2024 election. Other parties can also fill a petition if they wanted to run, say, a Libertarian or Green Party candidate. Governor Roy Cooper will also pick an interim to serve during the few months after David's retirement, but before a new DA is elected and sworn in. So that's what's next from a procedural point of view, assuming David retires when he says he will, which he has promised to do. David also wanted to tackle a few other theories that have been floated to explain his departure. Can I, can I first, can I dispel a couple of other rumors also? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not running for anything else. I was going to get to that, but no, okay. Um, you know, uh, and I, I, I guess I should be flattered. I guess some could be offended. <laughs> People say, we really want you to continue in politics. Um, first of all, I do, I do take it as a great compliment that um, people have asked me to run for attorney general or governor or other things. Um, I never say never in my life. I can tell you that I'm not running for anything else in 2024. Um, that is not what this is. Um, I'm also not leaving the area to dispel that rumor. I fought way too hard for this community and I love this place and I hope to live here the rest of my life and die here. Um, like I said, Ben, it's just the right time. And I'll, I'll be glad to get into a little bit more of the timing of things before we pivot to what I'd love to talk about, which is his legacy or whatever else. Although I'm still in the middle of this job. I mean, I, I have an important meeting tomorrow with the chief justice and all the chief district court judges in the state. I've got a murder trial starting on Monday. You've been covering the true color case that's on, on for January 22nd that I'm personally handling. I'm going to be the hardest working person I know between now and September. And I've always prided myself on my work ethic and people need to know that I'm fully focused on this job. Um, in terms of um, the timing of things, I'll also say that if you know anything about judicial retirement, when you hit your 25th year as a judge or as an elected DA, and that can be through a combination of being in the elected role or even an assistant DA in my case, which I was for five years then essentially what happens, Ben, is at, 20, at year 25, they kind of tell you it's time to leave. And what I mean by that is you're still allowed to work. Um, you're just not making any more money than if you retired and, and started drawing judicial retirement, which you're eligible for after you're over 50, which I'm just barely now, and you're, you're also hit that 25th year. And so I've never done this job for the money. I mean, I, I made a third of my salary that I was making in private practice when I was an assistant DA. And I've kept in touch with the people in the law firm I left 25 years ago, and I'm still making a third of my salary. So I, I tell all the other public servants in this office that you can make money or you can make a difference. So I'm not doing this for the money. But what I will say is that 
in terms of the right timing in my life, you know, I have, you know, one that just started in college. I've got a senior in high school and I've got another freshman in high school. It's the right season in the life of my family. Um, but again, in the 25 years I've been in this office, it's never been stronger. So it's the right time to, I believe, continue the peaceful transfer of power and, and allow that process to play out to see who the next DA is. As a reporter, I can't poo-poo the idea of a peaceful transfer of power. I, don't you think that's important? Yes, most people do. <laughs> I agree with that. You've been listening to our conversation with District Attorney Ben David. Coming up after a quick break, we'll get into the legacies that David leaves behind after 20 years in office. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for staying with us. We're talking with Ben David, who announced last week he'll be leaving office in 2024 after two decades as the elected district attorney for Pender and New Hanover counties. Over those 20 years, David has increasingly taken initiatives outside of the courtroom. I asked him which of those he thought were the most important and if there's anything he plans to do over the next nine months to ensure that those efforts don't dry up when he leaves office. So thank you for the question. First, I'll say I hope that one legacy that I've left and will be leaving is that we fight crime by building community. And what I mean by that is we need to marry up public health and public safety to each other, understanding that traumatized people go on to traumatize other people and particularly with our children, whether they're in high poverty areas, what we call adverse community environments, or if they're traumatized physically or sexually in an abusive household, and those are adverse childhood experiences. Those pair of ACEs, if we take care of our kids now, and that's why I've given every one of my employees two hours off each week to go volunteer in the community for the last 19 years I've been DA, to go upstream, to be basketball coaches or reading tutors at schools or work at DV shelters. I really believe that if we get the intercept point to, to a place where we can proactively prevent some of what we're seeing, then we're going to reduce the revolving door of recidivism. And so why I've stepped out of my lane as DA, we've stayed laser-like focused on putting career criminals and violent criminals in prison. 98% of all people in the criminal justice system who we put in prison are getting out one day. And so 66% are back in that jail cell within two years under the current rates of recidivism. So what are we doing about that? Drug treatment, mental health treatment, these community recovery courts we've set up, the most robust felony district court in the state that's taking care of 80% of all our felonies without indictments, saving our court time for all the stuff that we could be talking about. The place that started traffic court for North Carolina, and now they're in all 100 counties. These things don't just happen, Ben. They are systems that we put in place that say if we really look at understanding that the social determinants of health are the same thing as the root causes of crime, and we are working collaboratively with others in the community to focus on public health, we're making everyone safer too. 
over the years, I've spoken with a lot of criminal justice reform advocates who call the current system broken. They don't see the system as having any capacity to rehabilitate people and, in fact, argue that getting justice involved simply pulls people deeper into a cycle of trauma and violence. And at the same time, I've heard from dozens of law enforcement officers and prosecutors who also feel like the system is broken, albeit for a slightly different reason. They've grown frustrated at arresting and prosecuting the same people over and over again. Prison, they feel, isn't a disincentive, it's a status symbol, and in many cases, how criminals climb the ranks of gangs and other criminal enterprises. It's a sentiment so common, David quickly called it by a name I've heard many times in the past. Bad guy college. Bad guy college. It's like an accelerator for crime. Do you see a way out of that? I do. And I think we called it justice reinvestment and it's working. And just to remind everybody what that was, 10 years ago, we said, what if we stop incarcerating drug addiction? And we did that in two ways, mandatory probation, mandatory expungement for all possession cases for first offenses, whether you're talking about not just marijuana, but things like heroin and fentanyl and cocaine and meth. If you're a user, first-time offenders can't even go to prison, and they get a chance to get their good name back by getting that scarlet letter F for felony off their record. So we did that 10 years ago. But the second thing we did, and this was very crucial, Ben, is we said we need to have more community recovery courts, drug treatment, and we know that people are going to offend while they're on probation by having dirty urine screens, by falling off the wagon, on average six times. So if the first time that you fail of that drug screen, we can revoke your probation, it's going to be pretty easy to send you to prison. So why are we even going through this charade that we're going to give you a chance? So. 60-some percent of all people that were on probation were going to prison on probation revocations before justice reinvestment. We rewrote those laws to say that's now considered a technical violation. You can't get revoked except for new, new offenses or for absconding, that is running away. We're going to give you instead what are called quick dips, where you're going to go to jail for maybe a long weekend at first to say, do we have your attention now? You need to do this treatment. You need to meet with your probation officer. You need to be gainfully employed or be in full-time school. Oh, you did it now for a second time? How about a week? And have a graduated response. And what we found by doing that is we were able to have fewer people incarcerated long-term, sending them to that bad guy college you talked about. And so what we did in 10 short years, Ben, and I don't think there's enough coverage on this, and fact check me and look, We've closed 11 prisons in North Carolina over the last decade. We've reduced the prison population by 4,000 beds. That's 10% of the overall total. We've saved over $500 million in the cost of incarceration to deal with the broken system that most people are still talking about, which is mass incarceration, which is a broken model. We have 5% of the Earth's population and 25% of the Earth's prisoners. We know that's broken. No one wants that. So, as David suggested, we're taking a quick pause here for a little fact-checking. In 2013 and 2014, there was a string of 11 prison closures, although according to the Department of Adult Corrections, there haven't been any since. It's also worth noting that judicial reform is not the only factor in prison populations going down. Like most states, North Carolina has historically struggled with prison staffing, but COVID has pushed the situation into overdrive for both county jails and state-run prisons. 
The statewide vacancy rate nearly tripled from 2020 to this year, from 15% to 43%, and 31 of the state's 57 prisons have had to close units or reduce prison populations because of staffing issues. As far as the United States' staggeringly disproportionate share of the world's prisoners, David is not far off. With just over 4% of the world's population, the U.S. has roughly a fifth, 20% of the world's prisoners. Okay, back to the interview. Here, David wanted to talk about local initiatives, which is the kind of thing his successor could take on. So what we've been doing particularly locally, and I'd love to get into some local initiatives, is we have said there's got to be a different way. We know that mental illness, drug addiction, and particularly our kids, they need second chances and rehabilitation. They don't need a cage. And so I'm, what else am I proud of? I'm proud that I was the only prosecutor in North Carolina, and Judge Corpening and I were the only two judicial officials, period, who testified in favor of raising the juvenile age from 16 to 18. That was all part of the same thing that we're talking about. And we're, we're not going light on crime. You know, when we have a school shooter, I'm putting that in adult court, and guess who's binding him over as an adult? The same guy we just talked about. And so we're keeping our priorities where I believe they need to be, which is treatment, mercy, second chances for addiction, mental illness in our kids, prison and long-term incarceration for violent and career criminals, drug traffickers, habitual felons. And we've done that to some degree on the state level. Um, at the local level, here's just one example. Um, and look at the, these numbers. 2004, the year I became district attorney, they closed the jail across the street. It's now called the Harrelson Center. Uh, the reason they closed it, there was approximately 350 beds there. They said, we're going to need 500 because we're a growing city. And of course, the more that a city grows, the more beds you're going to need for hospitals, you know, desks for school kids, and of course, jail beds. And so they built this new shiny jail eight miles away on Blue Clay Road. And we filled it overnight. And it didn't take long. Um, they said, we're going to need to double it to 1,000 beds. Now, Ben, the cost of incarceration is $100 a day. That's over $30,000 a year. And by every projection, and, and they, they were saying we need a 1,000-bed facility in 20 years. Well, here we are. So do you think we have a 1,000-bed facility right now? Ben, we have the exact same number. Because it turns out you fight crime by building community, that's why. It turns out that there are things that you can do systemically to really start moving the needle on the root causes of crime. And we have really tried to do that as an office. We've tried to go into high poverty areas with these adverse community environments and say, let's, let's reopen some of these failing schools like DC Virgo or open new ones like the Glow Academy and reduce violent crime in the youth enrichment zone that we called it by 28% by increasing graduation rates by 25% during that same time period. Let's have the first ever expungement clinics in North Carolina to actually remove these scarlet letters for nonviolent offenders who have had no records for seven years and expand the Second Chances Act. And again, testified before the legislature about that. Not because we're going soft on crime, it's about being smart on crime and saying it's not complicated. If two out of three people in jail and prison are high school dropouts, it's really important to keep kids in school. And if the street's an equal opportunity employer, we have to start something that gives them a pipeline to a career. So 
You ask about all of these things, and I know this is a rather long answer, but it all comes back to the same thing. We fight crime by building community. And if we understand that the social determinants of health are the same thing as the root causes of crime, then if we work collaboratively together with what I call the five arms of the starfish, the, the government actors, the faith-based community, the nonprofits, schools and businesses, all around public health, public safety also goes up and crime goes down. I give a lot of credit. Again, I'm going to say something about my chief district court judge. He actually appeared before the county commissioners back then, and you can go look. Um, the sky was not falling. This is not Chicken Little. He said, we don't need a thousand beds. Um, there's, there's a plan in place that, and, and this is something I really hope I'm careful to do right now because this is not a farewell tour. I'm just simply announcing yeah. that, that someone is going to be doing this job other than me next November. There will be an interim period where the governor appoints an interim, but there will be an election. And you're going to have to ask him who it is. I have not even talked to Roy yet about this. Um, but what I'll say is, you know, this takes everybody in the system working on the same page. I mean, people ask me right now what I'm most proud of. Well, there's a lot of things, but how about having more jury trials during the pandemic than any other county in North Carolina? Not just per capita, more than Charlotte, more than Raleigh, more than anyone. And you know why? Because our judges said we're going to keep courts open. We're used to storms around here, and when stuff closes, we still find a way to get it done. Get the masks on, sit them six feet apart, and let's have, let's have juries stretched out over this entire courthouse. The defense bar, the clerks, the bailiffs, everybody stepped up to do that then. And we have a can-do attitude around here. We have resources in this region that frankly make us a laboratory for other places to say this is working. And it's, it's also caused me to say, I wanna fight as hard for the people of Pender County as I am for New Hanover. And the reason we don't have drug treatment court, veterans treatment, or mental health court up there, but we do in Wilmington, is because there's no funding for that at the state level and there needs to be. And so one of the reasons that I'm taking this fight to uh, the chief district court judges tomorrow and this ACES task force that the chief justice of the Supreme Court's asked me to chair is to say we need to speak in a unified voice for the 85 rural counties that unless we solve this at state level funding, we're gonna be in the same conversation. And so we have tried to take a regional approach to this and understand that we all have a role to play in this system, but it's precisely because no one's taking the individual credit that it's working here locally. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Ben David made pioneering use of the civil courts to go after criminal behavior. This started with a civil injunction, like a restraining order, against Club Rhino, a bar in downtown Wilmington that was effectively being run by a gang and seen as the root of a lot of downtown violence. David then moved on to the Market Street motels, and ultimately to his anti-gang injunction, targeting the 720 Folk Nation gang. I asked him if he thought his successor, whoever that ends up being, will need to use these injunctions, or if they should use them. I. I think it was important to file a gang injunction against the 720s when we did. I think we saved lives doing it. And if you look at the 25 names on that injunction, see where everybody is now. I think it was important to go after several of the motels on Market Street and say, you know, to these people who live somewhere else, it's not okay to be the absent landlord and run these dens of iniquity and think that we don't know that there's human trafficking and drug trafficking going on and we're gonna take your hotel if you don't clean up your act. And because 
you're not answering our calls, but the bank who owns the note happens to live locally. I put the bank at the table with us, and that changed the game. That was the worst neighborhood to live in in Wilmington when we got that effort underway. And now if you drive down Market Street, you see that these hotels are now booming and they're building new buildings because they've become safer places. Whether you're talking about gang injunctions or civil enforcement to close down bars or hotels that were in violation of all sorts of codes, we didn't pick them. The statistics picked them. We, we crime map. We, we say, where are the hot spots? What's really going on? And if we understand that there's a way to work smarter where we're saying we're going to proactively go out and try to prevent victimization and crime and not just keep responding to it, that was a civil remedy. And so I would, I would recommend and have to all my other colleagues currently to say nothing of whoever would succeed me. Yes, continue to look at that as a tool in the belt. Would you expect continued pushback from people like the ACLU on that front? A hundred percent. And you know what? That's okay. That's called democracy. And it should be people who test power and speak um, truth to it occasionally and to say that um, we're overstepping our bounds. And if we are, let's have a fight about that or let's agree to disagree. Um, You know, that's what this system is all about. It's about checks and balances. It's about... Um, separations of power. It's about making sure that um, the truth emerges. That's what verdict means. And that's what investigation should be, about relentlessly pursuing it. I think it's important to have the right people involved when we're doing these initiatives. And I have tried to partner with anybody who is sincere about upholding the Constitution, who believes in equality for all people, and who says that you know there's something about fundamental fairness that we need to remind each other of on occasion. And so I, I welcome that scrutiny. I've always tried to welcome the press in and to understand that we're not perfect. Um, and when defense attorneys or outside groups have occasionally filed motions or even filed lawsuits against us, I understand that. That's part of what this system is supposed to do. You've been listening to our conversation with District Attorney Ben David. Coming up after a quick break, we'll get into whether David has any regrets from his time in office and what's next for him. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for staying with us. We're talking with Ben David, who announced last week he'll be leaving office in 2024 after two decades as the elected district attorney for Pender and New Hanover counties. I wanted to know if during that time he's had any regrets. Um, you know, I first of all wish that I knew more about trauma and about this ACEs study. Um, that's been around for 35 years. I feel kind of like the prosecutors in the 70s and the early 80s, and even into the 90s, who had this science called DNA around them, (laughs) and said, wow, if we had embraced what this could be earlier, we could have solved a lot more cases and proven them beyond a reasonable doubt. 
predictability of certain outcomes at the courthouse and at the hospital have been known for decades. I wish I had known about that sooner and had put more things in place around that strategic plan. So I'm glad that we're doing it now and have been for a little while. I wish I had started that sooner. Um, in terms of cases, um, I believe in the process. I believe in putting the people in charge in the biggest things, and that's called a jury, and we've done that. I, I don't have any regrets about putting cases into a courtroom or what the community has said. They have overwhelmingly backed me up and this office up when we put the most important things in front of them. And on occasion when that hasn't gone the way that we wanted, I respect the process. Um, I regret that there are some people who have left the system through the years. Um, sometimes it's a resource issue, and frequently it is. Um, and while I'm happy for them, um, I wish that I could pay them more to stay if they're an assistant DA, for instance, than losing them to private practice or to somewhere else. Um, I've made some HR calls or should have made some sooner than I did that I regret. Um, but I would say that that's going to my greatest pride and joy also, which is the, the people who work here. Uh, the thing I'm most proud of is, is the people I serve alongside and who I've hired through the years. And not just the ones I've hired, but you know, I, I would love for you to look at this, Ben. There is no office even close to the seniority that we have here among our prosecutors in, in the 6th Prosecutorial District. Just as one small example, the violent crime wing you walked by on the way to this interview has six people on it. All of them were there for my first swearing-in back in 2004. They're still here. And you know what? And here's the good news. Every one of them will be here after I leave in September. They're the ones getting it done. I, I then turned to some of my younger prosecutors who arrived in the last five years to say nothing of the middle-level players that are all between those years. There are a number of people in this office who I truly believe will be here 25 years from now. And so that's my greatest source of pride. And if you ask if I've had regrets, I have regrets that there's some people who I, I haven't been able to keep along the way um, for a whole host of reasons. Over the last decade, I have met plenty of Ben David critics. For example, criminal justice advocates who think he is way too gung-ho about putting people, mostly black and brown men, many young, into prison. And probably just as many people, many in law enforcement, who think he's not aggressive enough, folks who complain about excessive plea deals and light sentences. And yet, in spite of the critics, no one has challenged Ben David since 2004. So I asked him why he thought that was. Boy, I, I don't know if anyone else wants this job. I guess we're about to find out. Um, you know, one thing I, I stumbled into right when I became district attorney, because I was, I was young, man. I was 34 years old. And it all happened so fast that I didn't get a chance to even be nervous. I mean, my boss retired in July and then by September, so two and a half months later, I had my first election and my first baby with my wife came two days later. And then, you know, six weeks after that, I had another election. So that four months is a blur. 
I didn't have a chance to look out over crowds of 500 people and, you know, stutter in front of a microphone too much. I was actually in the middle of a capital murder trial when all that was going on for six straight weeks. And so one thing I stumbled into right when I became DA is I said, I want to, and it, it happened with a certain case. There was a, a young man in my neighborhood who lived three doors down from me who killed a good friend of his in an impaired driving wreck. And I got to know both of those families pretty well. And I remember talking to one of the moms and she said, I just wish he had called. We would have come picked him up, you know, and I said, I'm going to start telling other kids that. So I, I started going into high schools and middle schools and, and just having an adult conversation with them about, hey, it's okay to involve your parents. I mean, I know that sounds unrealistic, but I'll bet you they'll give you a hall pass. And then we started talking about internet safety and there weren't even cell phones really like there are now in 2004. And then obviously drug use and what we really see at the courthouse. And that turned into a relationship I've had with these kids for the last almost 20 years where if you're under the age of 35 in this town, and I say Burgaw and Wilmington and Surf City and everywhere else, I've talked to your class at least twice, eighth grade and senior year. And if you're an incoming freshman at UNCW, six straight nights over June every year, that's 10,000 kids a year. And so one thing that I'm really pleased about is that I just did that because I thought it was helping out. And what I didn't appreciate at the time is the force multiplier of if you're walking through your community every day, you don't have to run every four years. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. I think people do it wrong when they spend a lot of money on bumper stickers and yard signs and you know, billboards. You haven't seen any of that. I, I, I go out into the community not because I think it's good politically, but because I think it's part of the job. And the gift of incumbency is, you know, I get invited into those rooms. I know I have the microphone when I get there. And if you do that in a way that hopefully is authentic with the people you serve, I think that creates a certain um, force behind the office that I don't think people have wanted to take on politically. Um, I, I have never talked to the first political advisor about this. And I, I can tell you, having an identical twin brother who happens to be in the opposite party of me, um, hopefully underscores that we should be taking politics out of this because we have a lot of the same philosophies. And I think that hopefully a lot of your listeners don't even know which parties we're in. Uh, it shouldn't matter. And so I hope that one of the reasons I've run unopposed is because I've largely had the support of the community. I know that there's not 100% approval rating and there never will be with anybody in this seat. And there shouldn't be. Democracy is messy. Um, but I think, I think just staying out in the community and um, being involved um, has really been a good opportunity to talk to my client, which is over 300,000 people. And I've loved being their lawyer. I mean, do you think the DA's office can remain above the fray of politics? It's hard, Ben. It's getting increasingly more difficult. Um, I, I saw it during the George Floyd stuff, right? 
we get drug in on these national conversations now. I was reading this stuff that was clearly from the internet that had nothing to do with what we were doing locally. There were false narratives all over the place. Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, you can take a local case and kind of take that kernel of what happened there and make it the popcorn of whatever they're talking about in another community and say, look, they're doing it here too. But I've never believed that we were far apart from a lot of what the people on the street back then were talking about. I actually agree with a lot of what was upsetting people um, during the George Floyd case. That was a murder caught on film. And I said that the first day I saw that film, and I said it publicly. Um, in terms of the politics of you know, conspiracy theorists and, and people denying science, we, we can't do that in a courthouse. We don't have that luxury. How can we prove a case that's 25 years old if all you have is DNA? And so, yes, I'm disappointed that it's become more partisan. I'm dismayed like everyone else that it seems like there's more division in this country, that there are narratives that aren't tested by the fourth estate um, that instead explode online that we didn't used to have. And so I think it's getting harder uh, with all that background noise to just speak the truth or at least try to form a more perfect union, knowing full well that no humans will ever do that. Um, do I think it's getting harder to keep politics out of the courthouse? Yes. Do I think we made a mistake putting labels back on judges when they used to be nonpartisan? Yes, I do. I was there at the legislature the day they put that back on and overrode Governor Cooper's veto to do it, and I disagreed with it, and I still say that. I think DA's offices should be nonpartisan. I think judges' offices, the sheriff's offices, anyone in the judicial system should be nonpartisan races. And I have done my best, Ben, and I hope you've seen personally that I have been baited into the culture wars more than once, and I have done everything I could to say next case and not give it the undue air that it needed to just deal with the case in front of us. Uh, because I think most people listening want us to focus on violent crime um, and, and keeping people safe and not stepping into some of the stuff that is just Frankly, vanity plays for, for different groups. It, it's, it serves no useful purpose. 20 years ago, when John Carriker decided Ben David was the best choice to succeed him, David was relatively young, but Carriker said he was one of the most talented prosecutors he'd ever seen. And David is the only prosecutor I've ever covered who has secured a conviction in a murder case where there was no body. And it reminds me that, aside from the policies and the politics, being district attorney is a job, and David is good at it. And like all jobs, it has its challenges, but it's not without its thrills. Lawyers like to win, and prosecutors are no exception. And I've heard prosecutors say they are speakers for the dead, and that's surely an awesome responsibility. But sometimes it's gotta be an adrenaline rush too. So I asked David, what can possibly compete with that after he leaves office? Whatever you say on the mic today, I know that that probably is a rush, yeah. being able to accomplish that. Oh yeah. What lives up to that? Good question, man. Um, first of all, I was 34. You know, there were career prosecutors in this office back then. There were three opponents in the Democratic primary waiting for me that had neckties older than me. 
I remember Mr. Carricker saying to me that you can win even if you've only been here five years and you're not, you know, well known yet. He believed in something that I thank him for because it was hard to see it in myself back then. And it's what I try to do for my career prosecutors in this office now. And I, I think I have 25 of them in this office. There's no one who wants to be anywhere else. We've built Camelot for prosecutors here. Here's what John Carricker, who happened to be a murder prosecutor for 20 years before he became the DA, said. He said, Ben, this is not my office to hand you. It belongs to the people of this district. And there's going to be an election. You can win and hold fast to this principle that should guide everybody. And it's what I'm going to turn to the people in this district and say once again 20 years later. Here's the test. Forget about Democrat, Republican, Green Party, or anything else. If the person you love most on this earth were taken by a crime of violence tonight, who would you want showing up to the crime scene to advise local law enforcement and then meeting that defendant in a courtroom to give the closing argument a couple of years later? The answer to that question will determine who you should vote for as your next district attorney. I was so privileged to be that guy 20 years ago. I've always tried to live up to it. I, there's a lot of DAs who don't try cases once they get into this office. I love it too much. I love it too much. And I love the, the dialogues that we have with the 60-plus pending murder cases, for instance, that we could be talking about and what we call our critical case reviews. I'm involved in every one of those, even though I rarely get into a courtroom now. But you asked the question, what's going to replace that, Ben? Um, I chose to announce this nine months in advance. I didn't have to. I could have waited till August 31st. I thought I owed it to the process to make sure that the people get a chance to have a community conversation on who their next DA should be. But this nine months for me is also a period of discernment. I really don't know everything that's next, but here's what I'm sure of. I'm sure I'm keeping my law license. I'm sure I still want to give victims a voice. I still believe in second chances, and I'm sure I'll never stop fighting for the people in this community. So what's going to replace that? I hope the greatest case I've tried hasn't even happened yet, and I still think that that's possible. Um, I hope to continue to be in a courtroom for years. I'm leaving office, but I'm careful to say I'm not retiring because I believe that even though the state says you hit the wall at 25 years in office, I'm hitting my stride as an attorney. And I can, I'm planning on still doing that for hopefully many more years. As a prosecutor? No, not necessarily. Um, I, I'm going to obviously be in private practice if I'm not here. Uh, but what that looks like, I'm really still trying to stay open to different possibilities. Um, I think there's some exciting things out there that, that, that are on the horizon, um, and I want to I be a part of those conversations when they occur. Um, but like I said, it's going to involve giving victims a voice. It's going to involve second chances. It's going to involve fighting like hell for the people in this area, which is what has fed me in a way that I never thought possible when I graduated from Wake Forest in 1995. Before we wrapped up, I had to ask, what happens to Potter, the therapy dog I see every time I come to the fifth floor, 
who I've known almost as long as I've known Ben David, and who, throughout the entire interview, was curled up on a dog bed behind David's desk. Potter stays. I mean, he is a therapy dog who is certified through Paws for People. Um, he has full run of this place for the next nine months. He actually lives with me at night. Um, I am happy to work it out with the office where he can still come in. He actually hit retirement age in September. In dog um, years or human in, years? Well, in, in dog years when you're eight, and he turned eight on September 17th, um, his, his table says that, that uh, he's finished. I actually called Paws for People and said, is he still allowed to be here? They said, if he's doing great, let him. Um, as you can see, he has an orthopedic bed right now, <laughs> but he's, he's here. Um, I, I, I'm going to have Potter um, around me regardless, but I, I hope that um, he's still helping kids out who need to testify, that he still gets to hang out with his um, people in the office, because uh, he's, he's the most popular employee by a long shot, especially in including me. <laughs> well, I will make it clear here that this is not an exit interview because you still have... That's right, man. Um, but for now, I do. Thank you, Ben. It's been an honor. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. Thank you to my guest, District Attorney Ben David, and to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org or as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have questions or comments or concerns or ideas for a future show, you can reach us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Newsroom.